about this lady and her team of people who have this incredible ability to deal with problem situations and behind the scenes pull some strings, do some things to make problems and sometimes make people go away. And she's in great demand from uh, the, the most powerful leaders of business and industry and government. Even the President of the United States, when there's a problem, wants to turn to her and her team to, to fix things. While the, the very fictional show, is, it's based on a very real dynamic at work in today's power structure in the world that we live in. And that is what's supremely important is getting and staying in power. And one of the essential things to accomplish that is to make sure that nothing happens or nothing gets out anyway to undermine your image or your authority or credibility. That's why we have, on times like this last Thursday night after the vice presidential debates, we have all the spin doctors on television that prattle on for hours spinning what actually happened so that they, they minimize what their own candidate did or didn't do that might be detrimental to their campaign or to their party and embellishing what the other one did or didn't do to try to put it in the worst possible light because it's all about containing damage and leveraging opportunity to make the other guy look bad. And if anything comes to light that is, that is a harmful situation, there is an all-out effort immediately to contain that. And you know, that's not really anything new. That was pretty much what was going on back in the first century in Acts chapter 4, where we are today. Last week, Galen uh, led us as we looked at the end of Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are telling people about what happened in the healing of this man that couldn't walk. And they restored his ability to walk to him. So please turn in your Bibles if you have them with you. I hope you've got them with you. Get in the habit of bringing Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to be uh, today. And Peter and John tell the people that the, the thing, that the power that healed this guy was what was done in the name of Jesus, the one who just a few weeks earlier had been crucified. And this is the one who had the power for their lives as well. Well, they're explaining this, and they don't even get a chance to finish the explanation when the equivalent of Jewish stormtroopers swarm down on the situation and haul Peter and John off and throw them in prison. Look at verse 1 of Acts 4. 
The New Living Translation says it this way. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. Now, confronted puts it mildly. One commentator in, uh, translates that this way. They burst upon them suddenly and expressed a hostile attitude of anger. They are determined to cut Peter and John off right there in the middle of their explanation. Why are they so hot and bothered? Well, look at verse 2. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. You see, basically what we have here in Acts 4 is a first century version of containment. Don't let that word get out. Don't let people be exposed to this because it could prove very damaging to people who were in power at that time. You see, there was this coalition of priests and Sadducees and the soldiers guarding the temple that that, uh, Acts 4 talks about. These were all people who stood to lose the most if this thing about Jesus being raised from the dead caught on with the population at large. There was a, a, a couple of reasons the Sadducees had a problem with it. First of all, there was a, a theological issue here, a doctrinal problem. The Sadducees did not believe in any kind of resurrection from the dead. But that was minor compared to the more practical problem that they had. You see, they had adopted a position of cooperation and collaboration with the Roman authorities. And they had a pretty cozy arrangement with them that not only kept them entrenched in power, but also as most of the time when people are in power, you find there was very financially lucrative as well. And when something comes along that threatens to upset the apple cart, they get really nervous. As verse 2 says, these leaders were very disturbed. They don't really know what to do, so they just go and they just cut it off right there and they throw Peter and John in jail overnight. I mean, there's damage that's already been done. At the end of chapter 2, we're told there were 3,000 people who became followers of Jesus. Now there's 5,000. So this ship is going the wrong way. The Sadducees, this, this picture doesn't look real good for the Sadducees. And they want to stop the bleeding. They want to contain it as quickly as they can. They're determined to get this thing under control before it gets totally out of hand and they lose their grip on government and their position. So they arrest these two rabble-rousing Jesus followers, let them cool their heels overnight. And the next morning, they drag them out of prison before a trial that is in the equivalent of the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. And virtually... Everybody who is anybody is there. Verse 5, the next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. You see, they didn't have a big issue with nepotism back then. They, They sort of just embraced that. And they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Essentially, they're asking Peter and John, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to start spouting off this kind of stuff? I mean, what on earth is possessing you to make such ridiculous claims? Now, you see, 
back then, it wasn't like today. Today, somebody can come up with any kind of harebrained thing they want to say, any kind of malarkey. That's a popular word this week. Any kind of malarkey they want to put out there. And if somebody, if somebody wants to buy into it, that's okay. Not so here. If you are going to go espouse a point of view, you better be able to back it up. You better have some credentials behind it, some kind of substance behind it, or you could get in big trouble. In fact, you could be executed for saying the wrong thing. And so they're calling them on the carpet. They undoubtedly think that by doing that, they're going to put the fear into Peter and John. They're going to get them shut up. They're going to intimidate them, which is one of the major, major uh, approaches or strategies for containment. We'll just intimidate them so they won't say anything. But they were in for a surprise. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? (laughs) I mean, he's going, really? You're upset because we helped some poor cripple? You got a problem with that? You got an issue with that? Really? Then he goes on, because here's the real issue. Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and all the people of Israel, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. I mean, (laughs) he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't back down. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't soft pedal it. He's just out there with it. You want to know how the guy got healed? Two words, Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not quite enough, so he adds another one, Jesus Christ. And that just really makes him blow a gasket because Jesus, in their view, isn't the Messiah. He is accusing them of killing the Messiah. And God raised him back from the dead. It's quite a confrontation. It's quite quite a showdown. What in the world possessed Peter to be able to do that? I mean, what on earth has gotten into Peter? Stop and think about it. Just a few weeks before, Peter and John, the two guys that are here in this showdown with the most powerful political, religious, and social leaders in the entire country, Peter and John confronted these same temple guards and some of the same Sadducees in a garden, and they turned and ran like scared little kids. And here, a few weeks later, they're they're encountering the same people, only it's not on neutral turf. It's It's in their arena. And they're standing up and saying, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how the guy was healed. Well, the truth is, it wasn't anything on earth that got into Peter something from heaven. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's what got into Peter. You know, sometimes we we kind of feel like, you know, we really need need to have courage. We need to have that kind of boldness. We need to muster up some of this stuff. That's never going to work if we try to do it on our own. The Holy Spirit that infills us will provide more courage and greater boldness than any courage we could muster up or manufacture on our own at any time. 
And <laughs> it was quite unexpected and bewildering to the Jewish leaders. I mean, they had seen him run. Peter not only ran, he denied he even knew Jesus again and again and with some profanity thrown in. And now he's standing up and saying, I'll tell you who it is. <clears throat> they don't know what to do. So they, they have Peter and John escorted out of the room so they can kind of figure out a game plan. How, what are we going to do? How are we going to stop this? We can't let this keep going but they're in a bind. Because you see, that guy had been crippled there in Jerusalem for 40 years. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew his situation. And now he could walk, and he was telling people about it. And they, they didn't feel like they could imprison or punish Peter and John because it started a riot. There's no way they're going to put this back in the bottle, man. And so what? look at verse 18. So they called the apostles back in, commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, uh, you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? It's a bit of a rhetorical question, I say. We cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. Everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. What an amazing thing to see God not only at work in the life of somebody bringing wholeness to the the man who had been lame, but see him bringing courage and power through Peter and John. They're just ordinary guys. That's amazing. Do you notice how they're described in verse 13? The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. You know, I hear people talk from time to time about someone in the Bible, and they, oh, they, it's like, oh, wow, man, that, that would be so incredible to have that kind of courage, that kind of boldness, that, that kind of faith. And there's this implication underlying that, that, you know, they could do that back then, but, you know, they had something special, and we don't. That's simply not true. These were, these were not incredibly special people. These aren't gifted men that have been trained and conditioned and developed to be superheroes of faith. Ordinary men. No special training. And you know, most of the time, that's exactly who God chooses to do some amazing things. I mean, Moses had a hard time talking. God used him to deliver the nation of Israel from the most powerful empire on earth at the time. David was the run of the litter, and God made him the great king of Israel. Josiah was a little kid, and and David used him to completely turn around the nation. And Paul, from everything we can tell, was probably a a short, little, stooped, bald-headed, it's not all that bad, bald-headed, crook-nosed guy with failing eyesight. And Peter and John are simple fishermen. 
netcasters. Look what God's using them to do. It's not what they have. It's how they let God use them. Verse 13 gives us the key. They realized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. See, the thing that enabled them, that empowered them to stand up to the overwhelming pressure of the religious and political and social establishment of the day wasn't anything within them. It was Jesus. It was the Spirit of God. They'd been with Jesus. Not just during the three years of his ministry. It was the end of that time. Like we just talked about, they turned and ran when the pressure was on. But Peter and John had seen Jesus nailed to a cross and die and taken down and laid in a tomb. And they knew that the power of God had raised him back to life, and they had been with Jesus then. So they had no fear. And because they had no fear, the authorities had no clue what to do with them. So they let them go. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Did you know that God is doing the same thing in the lives of people today that he did then? What, what he did through them, he's doing through us today. Joseph Tan grew up in Romania. I've shared his story with you before, but it's worth sharing again today. He left Romania to go to Oxford to study theology and was graduating in 1972. He's an old guy. Graduated in 72, and and he was sharing with some of his fellow students what his plan was. He told him he was planning to go back to Romania and preach the gospel. One of them asked, Joseph, what chance do you have of being successful at that with the, the climate against Christianity in Romania right now. And he thought about it, and he prayed about it, and he, he said God brought to his mind a passage from Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus said, I send you as a sheep among wolves. And he said he felt like God was asking him, Joseph, if you're willing to go like that, I mean, what chance does a wolf have of even surviving are a sheep have of surviving amongst wolves, much less converting the wolves. He said, if, if that's the way you're willing to go, then go. If you're not willing to go like that, then don't bother. He said he went anyway. And when he got back, he would, he would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without any hesitation. And he was constantly harassed by the authorities. He would be arrested. He said one time when he was being interrogated, an officer threatened to kill him. And here's what he said. He said, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Sir, you know my sermons are all over the country on tapes now. If you kill me, I'll be sprinkling them with my blood. And whoever listens to them after that will say, I'd better listen. This man sealed it with his blood, and they will speak ten times louder than before. So go on and kill me. I win the supreme victory then. You know what they did? They sent him home. 
that remind you of some story in Acts 4? They sent him home. And he said, he said, that gave me pause. For years, I was a Christian who was cautious because I wanted to survive. I accepted all the restrictions and all the limitations the authorities put on me because I wanted to live. Now, I wanted to die. I was ready to die. And they wouldn't kill me. Now I could do whatever I wanted in Romania. For years, I wanted to save my life, and I was losing it. And now that I wanted to lose it, I was winning it. Folks, what God did then, he still does today. It's a pretty inspiring story. Joseph Tons, Peter and John's, pretty inspiring. But, you know, I mean, really, what does this have to do with us? I mean, after all, we, we don't live in that kind of world, do we? We have the freedom to, to worship as, as our hearts call us to. We have the freedom to, to be a professing Christian. We have a freedom to share our faith with other people. We, we, we live in a land of religious liberty. We're not going to have this kind of persecution come on us. Sadly, at least half of the world does. But we don't live there. In 21st century America or the Western world, we have freedoms. We have protection. We have liberty. And we need to be thankful for that. We honestly have no idea how thankful we should be I mean, I know this country isn't perfect. It's got some real problems. But it's still the greatest nation on earth. And we are so blessed to live in a place where we don't confront those things for our faith, for standing by our faith. But if we have any notion that we're somehow exempt from persecution at all because of our religious freedoms, we haven't been paying attention. Oh, it's not like the persecution that Peter and John faced or that Joseph Tan faced. There's no overt attack. There's no threat of prison or beatings or anything like that. In 21st century Western world, those don't happen. In other places in the world, people die every day because of Jesus Christ. Not here. No, things are far more sophisticated here. And the ever-adaptable Satan is up to the challenge because he conforms to the circumstances. And he is far more subtle in his persecution. But it can be far more sinister as well. You want to be a follower of Jesus today? Go right ahead, our culture tells us. Just keep it to yourself. Just don't go telling everybody else about it. You can believe anything you want these days, and people will pretty much leave you alone as long as you don't go around telling others about it. The great social sin of our world today, our culture, is to try to tell other people that you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you even think about saying that Jesus is the only way, boy, you better duck because the rocks are going to start flying. 
you're going to be labeled as a bigot and a hate monger. But did you catch what Peter and John said in verse 12? There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. They weren't facing people putting them down or chuckling or ostracizing them. They were facing possible execution. They didn't back down an inch. They didn't offer any apology. They had, without any equivocation, without any, any excuses, they said, Jesus is the only way. That didn't play real well in their audience. And it doesn't play very well in the audience that we have in the world today either. Oh, it's okay to let people know you're a Christian. You can put the bumper sticker or whatever on the back of your car. You can wear the jewelry. You can have little slogans. I mean, you can do that most of the time and not get in trouble for it. As long as you make sure to to make it clear, it's just your preference, you know, sort of like your taste in music or fashion or whatever. Because after all, we all know that all religions are equally valid. And if you even start to admit that you believe that Jesus is the way, you're looked upon as either some uneducated bumpkin or some militant activist, and people want nothing to do with you. Or it could get worse if you're in the wrong situation and you profess your faith in Christ, you can get reprimanded or worse. If you are an employer or if you are a supervisor or if you are in some kind of position of authority with rel- relative to other people and you start using the J word, watch out. You get in big trouble for even saying the name Jesus. Or in other situations, you can be ostracized or ridiculed for believing the Bible and accepting it as true and valid. That happens in lots of places, but especially in academic environments. Oh, maybe there's no official policy about God or his word or faith, but you learn real quick it's not going to make you any friends and it's not going to gain you any respect. Now, granted, some followers of Jesus in recent times have invited that kind of response by taking some rather absurd positions on social issues. I'm thinking of a particular candidate for Senate in the state of Missouri right now. And we don't do ourselves any favors sometimes with that. Or by trying to force our beliefs, or at least the way we think people should live, on people in a very aggressive, caustic way. I mean, we do invite some of the anti-Christian backlash that happens, folks. When we do that, people respond as we would expect them to. Brothers and sisters, nowhere in this book, nowhere in the New Testament, are you going to find an example of anyone trying to impose Christian values on unchristian people. Because when we try to to take kingdom values and force people who have hearts dominated by the world 
to live by our values, you're going to get all kinds of backlash. We're not furthering the kingdom of God. It's got to start with the heart. We're not only not furthering the kingdom of God, we're not following the example we see of Christians in the New Testament. We espouse, we embrace restoring New Testament Christianity. Maybe that's one quality of New Testament Christianity we need to get serious about. We need to take another look at it. But there's another question, I believe, that Acts 4 challenges us to wrestle with. You see, we, we just naturally think of ourselves as being in the role that Peter and John were in here in this story in Acts chapter 4. We're the people who believe in Christ and, and people are opposing us and people are trying to, trying to persecute us and knock us down. <clears throat> and we do need to ask ourselves if we have the kind of faith and courage to stand up in the face of that, whatever form it takes in our world today, that's a good question to ask. But it just may be that we need to ask ourselves a different question. Because you see, in Acts chapter 4, the Jewish leaders, all these people that are listed there, they saw themselves as the true believers. They had stood up for God all their lives, and even more than that, for generations. They were the defenders of the faith. They were the ones who were the chosen ones. They were the ones standing up for the truth. They were the ones holding on to righteousness the way they saw it. Always had been. But the reality is, while that was their official position, they had become very comfortable in their situation. They had made peace with the status quo. They had formed an alliance with the powers that were entrenched in their world. And when someone or something came along that started to shake that, they got really upset. And they just wanted to contain it, even though it was the power of God that was at work. Because if that upstart movement continued, it was going to radically alter their place in the social and political order of the day. And that was hard. I mean, they'd worked hard to get where they were. They didn't want to lose all that. So here's a question I want to leave us with this morning. I want us to think about. As we have become more and more comfortable in our country and in our social order in which we live, and as we've made our alliances in various ways with the culture in which we've lived, who do we more resemble today? The people serving important roles in the established religious and social and political systems? Or these two men who had no social position, no political clout, no religious credentials, no turf to protect. All they had was an unfaltering faith 
in Jesus Christ and an unstoppable power of courage to stand up to anything. May God let us recapture that in our world today so that what he did through them, he can do through us. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, creator of